I think you still want human in the loop. You always want your hand on a steering wheel and you are approving these decisions. Recommendations are being pushed to you, to the human, to make a call. Hey, should we send this campaign? Swipe right to, for yes, swipe left for no. That'd be pretty amazing, right? Like if I, as a brand owner, if I, as a marketer, I wake up every day, I have 10 suggestions on the campaigns that I should do. And I could just like, okay, yeah, swipe to save it for a letter and I'm going to work on it. And then this one's not a good idea. I just click no or swipe left. That will be the world I want marketers to live in, right? Like I feel like we can get there. I feel like the technology is more and more ready every day, if it's not ready already. This is Startup Island Taiwan. Everything about Taiwan and cutting-edge technology, startup unicorns, and connections to the world. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John from the Asian Armature YouTube channel. I'm your guest host. And I have here John Chow from Trestle Segments. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Greg, I'm really excited because this is about AI and marketing. And I used to be in marketing. So can you introduce your company for our viewers? Like, What's your journey? Like, How do you end up in front of here? Sure. Yeah. So um, I actually founded Trestle while I was on actually paternity leave uh, with my first baby. But the story is me and my co-founder Tony met at LinkedIn playing hoops. And we always joked that we would start a data science company together. We were building a lot of machine learning models for sales marketing teams at LinkedIn. And, you know, the stuff we were doing is like taking first party data, engagement data, turning it into particular models and scoring every lead. And so then sales marketing teams can actually then target the higher conversion, higher propensity, as we call it, propensity scores, to convert them. Was this a manual process? In the beginning, of course, like prototyping it. Yeah, manual process. But then we launched in production and we actually got a lot of good results. And we're like, hey, man, this is like really valuable information that every marketer should have. Like marketers that big tech companies are really spoiled because they could get their hands on any data they wanted, right? There's like a thousand people <laughs> doing yeah. data on the back end, you know, and engineers, analysts, data scientists. So we were just like, well, how can we make this more accessible to millions of companies, not just, you know, the five largest tech companies in the world, right? It can't just be this way. So that kind of became our mission. It's like, how can we make data-driven effortless for all? So that kind of became the genesis for segments. Did you envision kind of like a tool or kind of like a process like how did the product initiate process come about when we actually first sat down we were at this like hong kong bakery you know with our, our milk tea and, and pork buns <laughs> and we started drawing stuff on napkins right and we started basically the first thing we wrote down was a bunch of ideas and one of them idea was basically ai for email because we knew that email was such a high frequency high volume thing something like 300 billion emails get sent every single day and people really don't have the data to make the decisions on what emails to send who to send it to what you should say you know we actually just left it there <laughs> we came back to it after about like six months or a year after we all quit and we're like hey this actually looks like a really good idea like maybe we should build this there was a couple of big rocks that we had to solve the biggest problem is data talent it's freaking expensive, right? And everybody wants to work for the large tech companies. Everybody wants to go to Facebook and Apple and Google and LinkedIn. And so everybody else is sort of like fighting for scraps, right? It's because right. they pay them like pro football, you know, athlete salaries. It's ridiculous, yeah. So how can a SMB or e-commerce company afford or does it even make sense at that price point to hire data engineers, data scientists, you know, just have this sort of expertise within, you know, in-house building their own? Like, does that really make sense? That became sort of the first thing we wanted to solve. Like, how can we amplify ourselves and make sort of abstract way this need, right, to have to build everything yourself? It just feels like a redundancy, right? It feels like a waste, you know, something that you potentially can solve with software. And that's where we wanted to tackle first. A lot of our viewers would be like smaller companies or something like that. Like, what 
is kind of the value of having a data analyst? Like, what can they do? So I, I worked as a data scientist for 16 years, right? And the insight that I got is this, right? Like C-suite or business leaders, they don't really care about like, hey, I have this awesome Python Jupyter notebook or this awesome tableau visualization, right? Because they don't really care, right? They don't really care what is on that dashboard. They just want you to tell them how to run their business better. They just want the numbers. They want the answers, right? They want what is being condensed and, you know, work through your big brain to give them the recommendations that they want, that they need to change the business or, or, or make it better or make it run more efficient or make more money. That's it. There's like a notion that I trust you as a data person to tell me, like to do the right things. So I don't care what you do. I just want the results at the end of the tunnel. And the results have to be right. Yeah, until you're proven wrong. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, like that's the thing. Like, honestly, like I, I, most of the sales leaders and marketing leaders that I worked with, they're not going to know as much about machine learning or analytics. Like what is LTV, you know, lifetime value? How do you calculate certain metrics? They're not going to get that. They don't care what SQL queries or how beautiful SQL queries you wrote. Right. They just want to see um, what's come out on the other side. So there's this trust that my HR team or my other data engineers have done their job to hire the right person. Right. And so I trust whatever you say, and I'm going to act on those information. And there's some checking and data governance stuff, you know, that you should have. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's basically your recommendation. If they believe you, they will act on those recommendations. So that's the difference. It's like, what is a data analyst? The data analyst basically helps your business run better. And it's not to build dashboards. It's not to <laughs> create, you know, SQL queries or create beautiful charts. Honestly, like those things are great, sort of like democratizing information. But, you know, you're really going to get promoted if your business leaders act on your information and get some results out of that. Is that the sort of vision that you were trying to bring to Trestle as you're building out the product? A lot of it, yeah. Like through my journey, I probably talked to, I want to say somewhere between 500 to 1,000 merchants, probably on DTC and a lot of marketers. And one thing that I'll tell you is like, when a marketer say, hey, I want better data, they're lying to you. <laughs> they don't really <laughs> want better data. They just want what's on the other side of it. They just want better results. You know, if you give them a bunch of data, really good, solid, accurate data, they still won't know what to do with it. They want better data, but that is actually just a path to getting to results. They just want the recommendations on the other side because they just don't have time, right? They don't have time to analyze it for themselves. So how did you employ these new kind of artificial intelligence methodologies, systems to this sort of paradigm, I guess, to create a better product? So when we started, we looked at Shopify. Shopify is a platform for anyone to start selling online in 30 minutes or less. You don't have to register any domains. You can do that by just paying them a subscription fee. You can start uploading your products and your website is live, right? And now you got to figure out how to ship it and run ads to your site. So it's kind of like the antithesis of Amazon almost, right? Because Amazon owns all that data. They want you to put up you know, you have a window into their traffic and you're just a vendor. You don't own anything. You don't own any of the data. But Shopify gives you a lot of autonomy, right? You own your brand, you own your data. And so when we started, there's probably like one to two million brands on Shopify. They all share the same data API. And we're just like, oh my God, this is such a data scientist's dream to have instant scalability on anything you build because everybody shares the same data infrastructure. And so we kind of started there and we looked at some of the solutions on the market. Clavio was one of the, it still is the top email service provider on Shopify. It had, uh, you know, workflows on triggering different type of emails based on events or, you know, somebody bought something or somebody didn't open email for 30 days. But what we were looking at is like, well, how do you know as a merchant when to send these emails or who to send it to? How do you actually create the different personalized segmentation um, within your data? 
Clavio doesn't teach you any of that. And so we thought we could create a engine, a data science or intelligence engine on top of Shopify data that would connect Shopify to the different marketing channels. Uh, that kind of sort of became the first thing, right? We created a RFM segmentation model on top of Shopify for Clavio. That was kind of the first version that we created. Can you break down a little bit more? What is an R- RFM? RFM is actually a marketing segmentation technique probably started in like 30 years ago and it's still probably the most effective one um, today. It's basically three components is recency, frequency, and then monetary. So those are the three letters. So recency is basically when did they last purchase? And this is the most important dimension. Frequency is just how many times they've purchased. And then monetary is like average spend basically for every customer. And so you can segment your customers in these three dimensions and create basically like a cube, depending on how many cuts of data you create. And you can place your entire customer base into these cohorts. And so it's like the person who spends the most buys, you know, the most recent and um, buys a lot. That is going to be your like MVP, right? Best customer VIP. Um, but somebody who's, you know, buys very little, buys infrequently and have very few orders, you know, those are going to be a low value customer. So those are two extremes. What are some other like other models that you tried or kind of built out into? So we worked on Shopify for about three years now. And so there are a lot of different ways you can segment your customers. And so we kind of look at it now as like four main areas. One is, I would say like rule-based, right? Business rule-based is like, oh, you know, buy your channel, buy, you know, payment gateway for people who are on Shopify. They could do it from uh, ShopPay or from PayPal. They can choose different payment. You know, those are just different sort of like business rule triggers like wholesale customers, uh, my retail customers, those are basically just like based on how you're selling your business, right? And those are are simple to create. We actually pre-create a lot of these audiences for customers so that when they come in, they can just like plug and play. The other types will be more like engagement based, right? Have they done X, Y, and Z, right? Did they buy two or more orders? Did they open email? Have they bought the red shirt, right? And then there are other types of segments that are sort of machine learned, so um, RFM segmentation could be an example of a machine learned segment because it's learning using your source data to figure out the right cutoffs and thresholds. Uh, when are people likely to churn? When are people likely to um, repurchase? Those could be an example of like a machine learned segment. The fourth type, which is interesting, we call this kind of like crowd generated segmentation. Like it's kind of like UGC, user generated content. Because we are a platform for segmentation, we can actually look at how every store is segmenting their customers using our filters. And so we could then help stores surface the most popular uh, kind of like type of head. Like in my mind, I'm thinking type of head search, right? But like kind of like type of head segmentation. Like if you are using order filters, then potentially you will want to pair with this one, right? Like we want to show you these are the top segments that are being synced um, across the different stores on our platform. How many like possible ways to, to segment this data there's are just, there? There's so <laughs> too many to mention. Too many to mention. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then do these segments these go to Facebook or do these go to email? Like how are how are marketers using this? Like how would they use this to make more money? That's a great question. Because what we saw was if we can be the data hub to collect Shopify, you know, transactional data, um, e-commerce data. And then also start pulling in marketing engagement data, create a list and then help them just push or activate those audiences across multiple channels. Then they wouldn't need to go out and buy expensive CDP like segment.com or um, other ex- enterprise level CRMs. Segment.com, what is that? They created a CDP, basically a customer data platform that helped. It's really technical. It re- actually re- requires engineers to set up all the events, but they help you pass events from source to destination, essentially. You know, a source could be like your your website, 
you could create, define these events, you could pass events from Google Analytics into, you know, whatever you want it to be. It could be in your database, could be, um, downstream apps could be your analytics software, but it basically allows you to create these pipelines of data. It's like a data pipeline and connector, and then you can then use that to then define different audiences. But it's very expensive, right? It costs maybe like hundreds of thousands of dollars. It requires a lot of engineering effort to actually build. So when we built our tech, partner in our store came in, looked at it, they said, oh, well, looks like you guys are just like a, the no-code version of segment.com. All these audiences pre-built and the pipes hooked up. So for example, like, like an active loyals, uh, one of the best segments we found from RFM is like people who are constantly shopping and have pot multiple times, right? These are usually the highest CLV customers. And so you can then now take this list and populate it everywhere to email, to SMS, to Facebook, to Google, to TikTok, write it back into Shopify as tags. And so we manage the entire process. It's really exciting, actually. Yeah, it really eliminates the manual work to download a list and upload it everywhere or try to figure out the same filters, triggers across different platforms. So you would be able to provide that infrastructure, right? So you wouldn't have to integrate with all of those endpoints, right, for all that data. Has that been challenging to kind of build out? I would say yeah, Facebook is probably the one that is the, the trickiest because they changed their API a lot. That is probably the one that we had to constantly watch out for and just like update because it will break whenever they push an update. But besides that, I think all of the other ones are pretty stable. We don't think of it as like work. I guess it's just we want to help. We want to create more outlet, right, for these you know, segments or insights we have created. So the more channels that they can connect to, then the potentially more uh, campaigns we can influence and the more money they can make. So it's I think integration is actually super important in what we're doing, the sort of CRM hybrid CDP. How would you imagine the difference or kind of where's your vision diverge from segment.coms and kind of how's that sort of change? Um, all these big data vendors, you know, Snowflake, Segment.com, Tableau, or some of these other more expensive software like Alterx, Databox, a lot of them are focused on enterprise players, right? Because traditionally, these guys are the only ones with the money and the budget to buy and like a large internal user base where everybody needs to see, right? They're still solving a lot of like Salesforce CRM sort of problem is like manager want to see. That's one of the biggest um, top-down decisions, right? It's like, I want to see how my business is doing. I want to see how my team is doing. So I need to have all of this data, you know, visualization. Everybody needs to be able to access and see them. And so that's traditionally been where all the money is at, right? But now a lot of people have data, right? Shopify could be a leading example. All these millions of merchants, day one, have all their e-commerce transaction data stored in the cloud that they cannot touch. And they don't. They know it's there somewhere, but they, they don't have a database. They have no notion of a database. Why would they need to ever analyzing it. They don't even know um, that it's possible. So there's this just huge potential on tap market here, I think, to help actually these millions of merchants actually make better decisions so that they don't have to worry about, you know, building a database, starting the traditional route of like hiring data engineers and, and buying software and buying a database and like all this stuff they, they shouldn't need to care about, right? One thing we say a lot is not everybody's a data scientist, but everyone should have access to one because they will help you answer all these questions about growth, about how to run your business. Uh, and so we think that should be like a universal, almost like universal software, but like it's like the data citizenship, right, is to have access to someone or software or, or an AI co-pilot to help you answer these questions. And that really is the vision that we want to bring to the world. What are these companies like? What are they like? Are they small? Like, are they individual people? Like, what does that kind of profile looks like? Um, you know, there's like 
definitely like mom and pop stores, you know, uh, single founder, solopreneur, merchant, you know, selling stuff online. Also to like, you know, seven figure, eight figure, nine figure brands. The largest brands that we work with, like Ilia Beauty, True Botanicals, Sardis General, these are all sort of really popular DC beauty brands in the U.S., um, you know, sustainable beauty is a huge thing right now. So there's a really wide range of type of customers. And then that's then those people, like what do they use if they don't have access to like an enterprise level database or your product? Like what are they using? There's a couple of things that like alternative agencies. So a lot of them employ agencies or contractors and agencies to build out some of their email strategy. Sometimes they have data consultancies and the bigger ones try to think about starting like their data practice in-house right um it's it's very expensive sometimes i think they don't know how much it could cost i actually feel like brands shouldn't do this unless they're they're ready to put maybe several million dollars over multiple years into it because like an average data scientist like out of school you're gonna pay them probably somewhere like 200 250k right all in so that's kind of the price (laughs) you know and engineers are probably more expensive so 300 to 500k and you need probably like four people. Like my skeleton crew will be like data engineer, data scientist, an analyst, and maybe like an architect. So that's like a million dollars right there. I think that's why people, they underestimate or they think there's like a unicorn data scientist, like one person. That's the notion, right? Because it's people don't know what it takes to like set up a database, run all the DDL pipelines, make sure they run, do the analysis, interpret the results, make the machine learning model. All these things require a ton of school, a ton of knowledge, and a ton of practice. So how are you going to like just generate data scientists out of thin air? Like it's really, really difficult because it's such a cross-disciplinary practice. You mentioned a little bit about this AI co-pilot just now, this yeah. idea. Like, yeah. can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, are you collapsing all those four <laughs> roles into one? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Like I think so back to that napkin, you know, what we wrote down on a napkin, right? AI for email, right? Like we always thought that what would a self-driving car or like a um, level four self-driving car for e-commerce marketing would look like, right? Like it's not going to be fully automated. We want people's hands on the wheels, but it's going to help you make a bunch of decisions just like, you know, sort of how Tesla is doing. And so what would that be, right? Like we have all the data to create a segmentation. We have the data pipelines to actually then connect to different marketing channels. So what's missing? Like how can a marketer create, for example, like 100 segmented campaigns today? Like what's the bottleneck? The first thing is time. Like if I only have eight hours a day, I can write one campaign. But if I need to create 100 variations of this, is that going to be like 100 times the effort, right? It's going to be so much time, like no sane person would want to do it, especially when you're pressed for time and pressed for resources. So that's one of the biggest bottlenecks. The second one, obviously, is just like not knowing, right, which and how to segment, like what to write and what to say and what is the differentiated personalized copy for every, you know, for churn customers, for lower customers, for high ticket item buyers, right? Like all these things. And I think AI, like when OpenAI ChatGPT launched on November 30th, we we're so blown away by this tech, right? Like this is the second coming of maybe like the internet to me, you know, it's like, that's the, that's kind of like a, a watershed moment for me. It's like, oh my God, like it's just so much we can do here. And then the co-pilot for coding, like our team, our engine team, we're already using the GitHub co-pilot to do coding and they're raving about it, right? And so we kind of took the same approach. It's like, okay, what if we could prepare data, right? What if you connected ChatGPT to your Shopify? and to your email, and to your Facebook, and to Google. So when you ask it to write an email, it doesn't just write you an email. It'll know, hey, you have you know 50 people that are about to churn. You should write them this particular email with this particular offer and this product 
and send it to these channels. That's what we are imagining what a true AI co-pilot for marketing would be. It's like, it not only answers like, hey, write me an email copy. That's all it could do. Like that's very little, right? That's very limited. But what if it's connected, right? To Shopify, to your email and actually can do these things and suggest them for you, schedule it for you, light up your marketing campaign, fill in the details, and then actually then assist you in campaign creation and sending. That I think would really unlock human productivity and creativity, right? Because then you can like abstract away a lot of the manual tasks and you can amplify the results. And that I think is like, like so amazing. Like we were trying to coin this term generative CRM, CRM 2.0, you know, marketing automation 2.0. That's going to be based on generative AI. I think that's where everything's going to go. That's really cool. That is actually really exciting. So you're kind of imagining something where it's not just like chat with your data. Like, like right now they have the code interpreter. You can upload like a CSV and just chat with your data. It's more like beyond that, because now you don't have to do the uploads connected to, to Shopify and all that, right? That's a lot of technical work. Yes, we already launched a small part of it. We call it Filter GPT. So Filter GPT is ChatGPT for segmentation. What it does is, is it turns natural language into filters on our platform to create a segment. So you could basically just say stuff like, hey, I want to find uh, customers who spent $200 or more in the last year, have not purchased this year, and, you know, have not bought like the blue pants or something like that, right? And it's connected to OpenAI, it's connected to GPT-4. You can actually use other languages. It doesn't have to be English. You can use Japanese, you can use Spanish because OpenAI supports the semantic understanding for different languages and it translates that and it feeds back to our segmentation engine and it returns the correct filters. I love it. It's like me personally, I was like, oh my God, I never want to go back to my old way of segmenting customers, <laughs> of having to figure out the filters, you know, drop down, click, 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 you know, it takes about 10 clicks to create that segment. But now it's like one sentence and we display the filters for you. So you should do some sanity check, right? You should still look at logically, does it make sense? Is it returning the right results? And I think it's the accuracy is actually pretty good. Like I would say 90%. So we're actually seeing like, this is something that I think will probably be adopted by all the solutions sooner or later. It's just because it's so easy. I used to use, kind of reminds me of something called Looker. I don't know if you remember that product, but they had like this sort of drop down. They were kind of trying to build this drag and drop system or something like that. And I checked behind the scenes, it's like just writing SQL code. Kind of reminds me of that, but like a little more advanced. So you can write actually the segment you want. It just builds that and then kind of integrates with Trestle to kind of just give you the data, right? So if you grab any random person on the street, right, and then they can actually probably describe to you a marketing segment. But for them to, to be able to like learn your tech, know how to create the filters, there's a huge uh, learning curve. Because not everybody's a data scientist, right? Most people in the world don't understand SQL. They shouldn't need to. And so I think this is where it really unlocks it. Because any new customer, if you give them this chat box and say, hey, like, just describe to me, like, who do you think are the best customers? They can probably do a pretty good job of it. They can just type what they imagine as a good customer, right? But they don't have to learn it now. And I think that sort of like immediately is like, it should just turn on and work. That is the feeling. It's like, I can just now segment my customers with by speaking almost like, and then the model would interpret it and return you that right segment. I really think everybody will move towards this type of model. Like all these onboarding tutorials, like here, click here and then do this. You know, after two minutes, you know, you're still pretty lost. How are you going to get past like marketers are very, you know, there are a type of people. And as soon as they're, they're going to type in like, oh, who's the most valuable segments, right? And then they'll give you information and they'll be like, okay, market to those guys. Like, how do you sort of guide them to expand their business beyond just like, find my top guys? That's it. Like, part of it is actually asking the right question too. 
They're like small AI agents that we want them to do different things. So like filter GPT does one thing. It translates natural language into a filter and it applies them. But it doesn't, for example, answer that question of like, hey, why should you, or who should you target these segments? So there needs to be a higher level AI data scientist. And that is the co-pilot to trigger these smaller AI agents. And that's how we're thinking about this, right? So we have a segmentation AI and we have a campaign planning AI, campaign designing or creation AI, uh, and then a reporting data AI. So we kind of have these four small AI agents. That's kind of what we're thinking about. And then have this overall AI data scientist to help you then like manage these AI agents to do your job. So to kind of like answer your other question, like, well, how do you know? One of the things that we were thinking about is like marketing calendar and campaigns. So for what we want to do is like, number one, why don't we just show you all the campaigns that you ran last year, superimposed to this year, right? Like then you know you were getting this much data or this much performance, you know, revenue per email, whatever on these campaigns that you run last year, because the brand was there. Maybe you just started, right? Like how would you know um, all these things, right? And so- Or you just forgot. That, well, yeah. yeah. And, and it takes work to dig up all this information, right? It's like yeah. all of these- Tool is actually not very intuitive to help you actually retrieve a lot of the, the campaign and, and data analytics. Why don't we do that for you? Number one. Number two, why don't we look across different brands and look at interesting campaigns that people have run that were profitable to then help you fill up, you know, your calendars for the different opportunity areas that maybe you weren't thinking about, right? Because you know what you know and you know what you did for your brand, but you don't have access to the whole landscape of different brands doing different types of campaigns and then use an AI planner to then help you suggest these campaigns to run. And then why don't we populate them with like information and templatize them? Now we just need to figure out how to hook up all these things. So I think that's really where the generative AI in terms of the CRM kind of comes into play. Like we think that's going to be super interesting. Have you thought about like making your own AI model for this or just like building on top of other like other AI models? I followed your latest episode on Asianometry <laughs> and I know how much it costs to train these AI models. So, you know, we don't have that kind of money. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what is it like 30 million or something to just train? What is it? Eight trillion parameters. If there are like, huge backers out there, <laughs> you know, let me know. You guys want to invest in this. But I think for now, we'll do what we can, right? We will leverage the APIs, right? We'll leverage OpenAI, we'll leverage other type of, um, you know, image AI, stable diffusion, all these other um, DALI, all these type of um, models are already available to us and they don't cost that much, right? AI is going to be like drinking water. I feel like you're going to have access to it, you can turn it on and it's going to be there. And then how can we then use different you know, methodologies that are kind of like out there, right? Lang chain or vector databases, embeddings. There's a bunch of techniques people have figured out on top of this infrastructure to help make ChatGPT better. And so I think that is actually the most pragmatic way to move forward and make it sort of your own. I think that's what we'll do first. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back a little bit to DTC, the DTC firms. Like what's kind of the current state of the market on DTC? Like what are they looking for? What are they asking for? Like you mentioned Clavio and some of these other companies. Like, are they happy with those tools? It's interesting. It's interesting because uh, it's kind of a love and hate relationship, I would say. I mean, I think for Clavio, that's really good because they make a lot of money from D2C merchants and they don't really have a good alternative, you know, right now. Once we build this generative CRM, who knows? But for now, they are looking for better ways to do essentially the same thing, but for less. D2C merchants are time-strapped, wearing multiple hats, uh, constantly bombarded with like refund requests and failed orders and fraud orders and shipment delay. So those are top of mind questions for them. But how can we help them understand who their customers are, when you should target them? Because um, those are actually just potential dollars on the table that you're, you're just leaving there because you don't know that they're about to churn or you don't know 
uh, that you should talk to them this way and personalization and running ads you know, more efficiently. One of the things I heard from some DTC um, brands is like, oh, we just let Facebook figure it out. And what they mean is like, I just target the entire US market and then I just use a budget and let Facebook train their AI model and then they will find me the conversions. That's what Facebook says you should do. That's right. And I feel like it's like men in black. Like, I don't, they have, I want those flash pen. Like, I think they give that flash pen to like everybody in the US and they forgot all about like Cambridge Analytica and how, <laughs> you know, all that stuff, how Zuck was in front of Congress. Like, it's super weird, right? But it feels like that flash pen, memory gone, everybody's back to trusting Facebook and be like, oh, here's my budget. Just figure it out for me. Like, that's really magic that they could do this. But, that's what brands are doing because like with iOS changes, all the interest group targeting is kind of like not working anymore. And so now everybody's like, okay, well, I just let Facebook figure it out. It's kind of like you go into Google. The recommendation is always like increase bid, right? Increase bid size. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like whenever they ever told you to decrease your bid size. Nope. Never, right? I mean, it's a public company. They for profit. Like their goal is to make their as much money. Their goal is to make money for their shareholders. But they also control like the, the gateway to reach the customer, for sure. right? For sure. So when you do... A trestle segment, and you're also trying to build on top of some of their tools a little bit, right? Definitely. Yeah. So I think the reason for creating these data tunnels really is you prepare the data first, right? And you tell it to like your downstream outlets, you know, Facebook, Google, TikTok, they're all outlets, right? To reach an audience. But if you can pre-create this different segments of customers, customers who bought more than three times, customers who've never bought from you, customers who spent over a thousand dollars, they should get different treatment. And so if you can then customize the delivery for them, you're going to get better results, right? This is, I think segmentation in general is something that every marketer, like 98% of marketers agree works, but it's just like how to segment and what tools you can use to segment is sort of missing. And it's a huge wide gap here on what you can do with data. I think that's more the reason to understand, right? Like if you understand your customers, just like Netflix, you know, tags all these movies, tags all their users. And then they can do a much better matching across the two. And so it's never going to be a waste, right? If you learn more about your customer, you're going to know why they're buying from you. What do they like? What do they not like? When are they repurchasing? Are they buying product A and then B? Those are the things that a data platform like Segments can teach you. Do you feel like these DTC companies, what are they most leaving on the table when it comes to revenue? Like what is something that they always forget to do? Even though they're using Klaviyo, a lot of the flows we've seen, like we've been actually doing a lot of Klaviyo audits for brands and a lot of them are missing key flows. Um, email is really cheap to send. Per customer, you're probably looking at like one thousands of like a dollar. And so this is actually just money on the table because if you can reach those customers at the right time, the URI on that is going to be like huge versus like Facebook and Google. You know, you have a fixed CAC there, right? You're going to probably spend $50 or more to acquire a single customer. So the return on email is much, much larger. Then they just do whatever the default is, right? That's exactly it. You nailed it on the head. Like they use the Clavio default templates and something wrong. My pet peeve with defaults is that they're default wrong for you <laughs> <laughs> because it's not based on your store's data, right? Like who told you that your repurchase cycle is 14 days? Like, why are you using the default wait seven days and wait 14 days? Is there a reason? They don't understand. They don't know. Like, oh, I just use this default template. I never thought about that. So when we push, this is where like the value of data can really suggest because we can see from your repurchase cycles that people lose interest or they stop repurchasing after the 11th day, right? So if you reach out day 14, it's too late. So these are the things that just having these insights or data in front of you pre-built can really sort of teach you a lot of uh, lifecycle insights. I really think they could just immediately benefit from doing even the basics. Can you imagine Trestle running experiments? Like maybe just your co-pilot, right, has to be like, well, we're going to try the six days. Well, that's not going to work. 
you're way ahead of me. But yeah, I actually think the co-pilot ultimately would just be an A-B test engine, <laughs> <laughs> right? If you could create, you know, 100 different type of email campaigns and test all of them, assuming you have a large enough audience, that's going to be really powerful, right? Like at LinkedIn, we were doing something like 2000 experiments every day. And so we had this thing called a champion versus challenger. What that was is like, we would launch like a new version of the predictive model every week. And then it'll go toe to toe against the model from last week. And if the new model wins, then the new model challenger becomes the champion. And then that becomes the default production model. And so what if you could do that for all of your campaigns and ads, right? Look, currently you don't do it because it'll require a ton of work, a lot of work. But what if you could create, you know, one, you still have your photo shoot, you still have your photography, your assets, really high quality stuff created. And then what if you could use AI to then make variations of that? Right. You can make infinite number of variations and test, you know, 50, 100 different type of campaigns. And you could like create really micro segments uh, based on every single data nuance or, you know, small variations in copy or in the image that becomes possible. Right. Like I think as soon as ChatGPT and copy AI and you know, all these like image AI stuff came out, that kind of became a reality. You know, it's not far from the horizon like that's going to come. And I think this is the last piece. Right. Like once you figure out, you know, go from data to the segmentation, to then the campaign creation, planning. And then the last part is then, do you want to then turn on this AI A-B test engine, which would then just test all the different you know variations and pick the winning one and then move all the traffic there. How would you put the human in the loop? Like the store manager, obviously, back in my old job, they wouldn't even let me send out a Facebook ad or an email without like some manager review. Like how would you kind of bring, insert that human in the loop? And at what steps are you imagining that would be? For sure. Like this is why it's a co-pilot, not a autopilot. Because I, I really think AI is here to make humans more productive and creative. I'm a terrible at drawing, but I could now use prompts, you know, to generate pictures using mid-journey. My daughter happened to love Rapunzel and I typed into Midjourney, Rapunzel, long hair, golden hair, you know, Disney-like background uh, with two girls reading books. And it generated this like image for me, basically fitting that exact screen. I can show the picture to you guys, but it's like, I'm not an artist, but I could do these things now. Like that makes me feel really empowered. And I think that's the power of AI is to help marketers not having to worry about the data anymore and not having to be bottlenecked by branding or brand assets, creations, all the design, all these things, but just have my high quality photo shoot, but then make a lot of variations of it for the different segments and the different customers and use AI to then help me make the 50 new segments that I wanted to make, but I couldn't. So I think you still want human in the loop. You always want your hand on a steering wheel and you are approving these decisions. Recommendations are being pushed to you, to the human, to make a call hey, should we send this campaign? Swipe right to, for yes, swipe left for no. That'd be pretty amazing, right? Like if I, as a brand owner, if I, as a marketer, I wake up every day, I have 10 suggestions on the campaigns that I should do. And I could just like, okay, yeah, swipe to save it for a letter and I'm going to work on it. And then this one's not a good idea. I just click no or swipe left. That will be the world I want marketers to live in, right? Like I feel like we can get there. I feel like the technology is more and more ready every day if it's not ready already. How can you imagine AI helping companies who are just starting out, right? So the biggest problem for these really small DTC companies is they don't have any data, right? They maybe have like a couple orders, maybe 10, 15, maybe a couple hundred. How can AI help those guys? If you know your product, you know, you don't know your audience, and I think that's the first thing you should figure out. Like, obviously, that's like a, that's a you thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a you thing. thing. <laughs> you should work on, you know, product development, you know, <laughs> your, your messaging, your audience. 
those are the things that will define whether you sort of make to the first beachhead or not, I think. But once you get to that first beachhead, then I think AI can really help you fill in some of these gaps, right? Just like we talked about like user-generated segmentation, you know, or, or campaigns from similar brands. If you could get inspired by what all the big brands are doing in August, in September, you know, Labor Day, Halloween, like then you make it for your own sort of like personalized brand flavor, right? With AI's help. Right. You could, you could say, okay, well, here I can write a story about our brand and then ask AI to say, hey, can you turn this campaign in the voice of our brand? It can absolutely be done. Right. And so um, a lot of that, it's like um, Bayesian priors. <laughs> you know, these are just priors from other companies that you can then borrow for your own. Right. Because you're probably already doing that today. You're going to like these email templates, websites to look at what other people have created. Or you go to like this other competitor is like, okay, yeah. they're running you subscribe sales to your, Yeah, <laughs> you subscribe to their email newsletter and you try to then follow in their footsteps, right? So how large is your team like right now? Like in, about 12 in, people right now. 12 people. Are they based in Canada or? In US and Taiwan. US and Taiwan. How large is your Taiwan team? Uh, we have about nine people in Taiwan. What are they working on? Is it engineering or kind of like? Mostly engineering. Um, and then also um, we call it like revenue operations, which is basically like sales, marketing, and customer success. And, you know, product design, data science. What's it like kind of recruiting Taiwanese talent? We were really lucky, I think, because we found such high quality talent. I'm super stoked about our time team. Every one of them is just like really, really good. I posted in a bunch of uh, job sites. I ended up recruiting four from one of the websites called meet.jobs. I put up English job descriptions because I was like, I want to find people who can speak English because we have a only remote team, uh, fully remote, and we uh, use English for all meetings. And we have a very Silicon Valley culture. Like we kind of practice no rules rules from Reed Hastings, Netflix founder. A lot of from that book, plus some of our own LinkedIn stuff that we learned. So it's all about like responsibility, freedom, responsibility, you know, radical candor, transparency. So we were looking for a very specific culture fit of people. And I think using only English job descriptions help sort of um, narrow <laughs> the audience to the people who are willing to basically like be successful in that culture. Was it kind of hard for them to get to speak English on kind of a workday basis? So some of them have had work at like, sort of like foreign companies. So they are relatively more comfortable, I would say, but we've had worked with people who are maybe for the first time working in sort of like English only environment. We also have really interesting like international students. We had um, an intern from Peru and she's converted to full-time. We had an intern from Guatemala. They're doing like scholarships. They're learning um, in Taiwan. And it's really hard for them to find jobs because <laughs> they don't speak Chinese. They don't speak Mandarin. And most companies here require them to read and write and speak in Chinese and Mandarin. So they're super excited that they're able to find like English only jobs because then they can really thrive in that environment. So we're super fortunate that way as well. What's it like working with those Taiwanese? Like what's like the culture like? Is it just like what you might think? Like you just tell them something, they do it like very execution This is based? the biggest difference between like, I would say Taiwanese engineers and probably like maybe like more like US-based engineers. Like US engineers, they don't want you to tell them what to do, <laughs> right? <laughs> they're like, you know, don't tell them what to do. Like Facebook engineers are kind of this way. They're kind of known, right? To be, they're like the number one sort of like first class citizen and then the, everybody else is kind of like second class citizen. Taiwan talent, they're super smart, but they're kind of trained or I guess like their schooling has sort of removed somehow like or just really limited their ability to speak up. It's like, oh, you don't want to be the one to stand out. You just want to kind of go with the herd. And if I speak up, maybe my boss doesn't really mean like, you know, speak freely. Maybe that's not what he means. <laughs> if I speak freely and criticize them, maybe I get punished. So maybe I shouldn't tell you you're wrong. 
And so I think that's a big part that we've had to introduce different type of mechanisms to collect feedback. And so I would say like on the meetings, we have um, all hands on Monday and then Scrum on Thursday. And then we run the Scrum pretty tight, but I usually share some thoughts about the company, about the product directions. And I ask for you feedback and I've learned to take silence as a, you know, standard <laughs> as like what usually happens. But sometimes the engineers will speak up. Like a few of them have learned that it's a safe place. They can say these things without consequences and they will make these recommendations, suggestions. And I think I really, really appreciate that. The other thing we do is we have these retro, we call it basically retrospective. After every sprint, we run basically like one or two hours and ask people like, start, stop, continue, right? What are some things that we should continue doing? What are some things that we should stop doing? And what are the things we should start doing? Like what's working? And we ask them to then fill out like a sticky notes, I guess, <laughs> using a Figma. And then they can fill out these sticky notes on all the things that has worked. And that is one of the most valuable meetings we have every month. So you feel like they're kind of a little more restrained. They're not going to call you out in a big social setting, but they're more amenable to giving you quiet feedback behind. Everybody has opinions, right? But they're just like, they don't want to speak sort of out of turn or in front of a lot of people, but like how to create a safe space where they can then voice their feedback. And all of these feedback are super valuable. Like we've made so many different ways, variations of like running our um, our, our development um, sprints and cycles, right? And we've tried like six weeks, we use this thing called ShapeUp from the Basecamp founders. It's called ShapeUp. So it's not a typical Scrum or Agile, but it's very similar. Shaping the product and then leaving out a lot of details for the squads to actually implement it, decide on the ground. And so that's how we run our cycles. But do we do it like four weeks, six weeks, you know, five weeks? It's just like, what are we comfortable with, right? And so a lot of different changes. And um, I personally have like introduced stuff that didn't work. For example, like we had these, we call these war room. War room basically is like you want to get something out, right? And everybody's basically locked in the room and you're working on this stuff. But letting the war room went on, I let the war room go on for too long and people start to lose focus because everybody's on the same team in that war room we actually start lose focus and accountability and it was slow so like we stopped you know and we went back to the cycles and then everything picked up again it's like all these things it's really interesting it's like how do you actually get people to work efficiently and happy it takes a lot of uh, practice and i would say the feedback from the team is really valuable because if they don't say anything to you then you just keep going and people will slowly fade and that's the worst right that's worst and, you know, that passion dies, right? That's the worst. So what does the future hold for Trestle and your team? What are you excited about? What are you working on? What do you be good doing in the future? I think this generative CRM, that's we just like wake up thinking about and going to sleep thinking about. I think the entire team is super stoked on it. Like everybody have like embraced sort of open AI and try to find more interesting ways to leverage ChatGPT. Use ChatGPT to create a, a report for you, suggest campaigns to you, you know, suggest copy. It's just so many things that left to be worked on. But I think the future is like, how can we really create a generative experience and make data-driven effortless for, for millions of brands, starting with e-commerce and, and probably other, other companies? John, so exciting to have you and to have this conversation with you. Thanks Likewise. for coming in. Anything you want to pitch? One last thing. Uh, we're actually based in uh, the Taiwan Tech Arena as part of the Spark Labs and so um, we're looking for, you know, partners, investors and people who love data and data nerds, data engineers, AI to come and join us. Great. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, John. Thanks so much for having me. 